developer in the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Satuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. What follows is a conversation, of course, that I had with Dave Cameron. And it's a conversation that begins uh, with a little more than an offhanded question about a piece that Dave Cameron recently wrote for the pages of ESPN Insider. Of ESPN Insider, something that's also available to uh, a post that's also available to subscribers to Fangraphs Plus. Fangraphs Plus, our annual product, I guess you call it annual product. In any case, in this piece, Dave Cameron goes looking for comparables for free agent Jacoby Ellsbury, a player who, uh, because a lot of his value is informed by speed, some suspect uh, might be more vulnerable to age and age-related decline. That's not the case, it turns out. Or it appears not to be the case. But like I say, that's where our conversation begins. Where it goes from there is I ask simple questions of Dave Cameron, naive questions, and he answers them uh, patiently, I should, I would say, and generously. So if you can imagine that happening, that is the thing that happens. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. Davy, Davy, Cameron, Cameron, Cameron. Yeah, that's that's what people used to call me. I was just reading this uh, piece about Jacoby Jacoby Ellsbury yep. and uh, how he's likely to age. Well, yeah, I mean, it's more about a piece on how people like Jacoby Ellsbury or with Jacoby Ellsbury-like skill sets have aged in the past. I mean, I think, you know, projecting aging for a single player in the future is still a little bit tricky, but, you know, we can look at other kinds of players with similar skills and make some inferences about how Ellsbury might age, and uh, it turns out pretty well. Yeah, and is it, wait, I, I I didn't get to this part of the table. Is it because they keep stealing bases, or are they doing something else? No, it's basically because their offense doesn't decline at all. They're, they're batting lines. Uh, so basically, I went through the table and kind of showed... Uh, you know, for people who care about the methodology, I guess. Uh, basically what I went is over the last 30 years, looked at all center fielders in their age 27 to 29 seasons, which is Ellsbury's last three. So I wanted to find players who'd produced to the similar level at about the same age as Ellsbury heading into free agency. Uh, and then I limited their power by putting a maximum ISO of 180, uh, on the, on the filter. Uh, so that got rid of, you know, Andrew Jones, Jim Edmonds, and Ken Griffey Jr. Guys who uh, were, you know, elite center fielders because they hit a lot of home runs. That's not what Ellsbury is, so I didn't want to look at those guys. And then uh, basically looked at guys um, who got a lot of their value through speed and defense. So, you know, I mean, Ellsbury has been a pretty good hitter over the last three years with a WRC plus of 123, but, you know, his calling cards really are his legs uh, and what he can do on the base pass and what he does as a defender in center field. Um, so, you know, went through and looked at other players with similar skill sets, uh, and found nine other guys who I think, you know, work as pretty good comparisons. Uh, Lenny Dykstra, Ricky Henderson, Kenny Lofton, Tim Raines, Andy Van Slyke, uh, Ichiro Suzuki, uh, Devon White, Steve Finley, Marquise Grissom. Um, all of these guys, you know, average or better hitters, so we're not looking at, you know, the Juan Pierres of the world. Uh, and all of them pretty good defenders. Uh, Tim Raines may be an average defender is the worst of the group, but overall, all defensive positive guys. Good base stealers, not big home run hitters. Um, and so I looked at all of, all of their performances from 27 to 29. Ellsbury actually compares very favorably to all of them. Uh, his war per 600 plate appearances during the last three years equal to Ricky Henderson's during his age 27 to 29 span. Anytime you match Ricky Henderson, you're doing pretty good. Uh, 
Uh, and then I looked at their performance in 30 to, from age 30 to 36, which is what uh, years Ellsbury would get if he gets a seven-year deal, which is what I'm expecting he's going to get this winter. Uh, and it turns out they maintained uh, um, almost exactly their their batting line. Overall, the, the 27 to 29, or the group from 27 to 29, had a 354 Wilba. From 350, from 30 to 36, it was 351. The, their offense declined almost zero. Uh, their defense declined some, as you would expect with players getting older. But their offensive levels were maintained almost entirely. The um, <clears throat> players typically decline. Uh, in all aspects of their game, well, I mean, all right, so we know that the, the, the sort of age curves are different for different skills, yeah. but uh, can we say that typically uh, players, uh, their offense decreases after around age 30? Yeah, I mean, I think we know that, you know, most skills start declining on the wrong side of 30, whether the peak is 27, 28, it's somewhere in there most likely is the overall uh, blend of all skills. What I think we know is that walk rate generally continues to increase as you get older, uh, and your power diminishes, your speed diminishes, uh, but your play discipline improves. As you see more pitches and you learn the strike zone, you get better recognition. So if you're starting from a point like Ellsbury, who's not necessarily a high walk guy right now, he's, you know, fairly aggressive for a leadoff hitter, um, there's room for growth there. I think Ellsbury, we can expect his walk rates to increase, which will offset some of the loss of power, uh, or, you know, if there is a loss of power, he's not a huge power guy to begin with, um, if there's a you know a, a loss of bat speed, uh, his improving plate discipline will offset some of that. So I think overall we see that there's not a huge decline in offense on the wrong side of 30 the way there is on defense. Defense certainly peaks earlier. Uh, there's some thought that defense might peak as early as 23, 24, 25 years old. Yeah, I actually saw um, I think a piece. Um, this might have been an archived piece by uh, Eno Saris our colleague, which uh, maybe put power at around uh, the peak age of that around 24, 25 as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, trying to isolate the skill and saying where does this specific thing like power or contact rate, it gets a little tricky because there's a lot of interaction. Like perhaps maybe uh, players hit for the most power at age 25 because they're also swinging at pitches out of the strike zone and they're and as they become more disciplined, maybe they hit for less power, but they're overall more productive because they're not chasing pitches anymore. It's tough to say exactly how that is. But I think what we see is the uh, kind of the balance between skills uh, for offense tends to peak in the late 20s. Uh, the balance between skills for defense probably peaks in the early 20s. So there's no question Ellsbury's going to get worse, right? Like, uh, you know, these players age really well relative to, you know, the idea that speed and defense players fall apart at age 30, but they were still significantly worse. I think, you know, what I found is that uh, on a, you know, war per 600 basis or, you know, basically a performance basis, the nine comparables retained about 70% of their 27 to 29 value from 30 to 36. So, you know, they, they declined by 30% uh, in rate performance, and they, then they declined by 12% in playing time. They went from, uh, you know, 590-something plate appearances per year to 520 plate appearances per year. So, you know, it certainly declines as you get older. Uh, the question for every player type is how much of a decline and how steep is it going to be. Right, and it seems like for some reason – this group uh, retains uh, they retain their offensive skills in a way yeah. that uh, we don't generally see other players do. Yeah, I, I think like now we're getting into a little bit of physiology speculation, but I think that when we look at players like this, like Ellsbury, we can 
fairly say that these are probably the most in-shape athletic players in baseball. Center fielders uh, who are speed guys, good defenders, these guys are in good physical condition, right? You don't have any of these guys who are overweight. Uh, they generally don't have knee problems. Like, these guys are exceeding at this kind of skill set because of their athletic ability. Uh, I think, you know, just in general life, we understand that a person who's in good shape is probably going to have fewer health problems as he gets older. Uh, people who exercise and, you know, aren't carrying extra weight are going to, uh, you know, be, be in better physical condition in their 30s and 40s than they were, uh, or then, you know, maybe someone who's, uh, you know, a little larger. Um, so, you know, I don't think it should be a huge shock that that carries over to baseball and a guy like Ellsbury who's, you know, carrying very little body fat, uh, who's in good physical condition when he's not getting run over by his teammates, um, you know, is more likely to retain his physical skills than perhaps someone who's been carrying an extra 30 or 40 pounds and is doing damage to his knees. It's also important to do uh, Sudoku, I understand, uh, as you get older. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy a game of Sudoku and I'm not that old. Yeah, right, but I think it's good for you as you age. I just, you know, we were just talking about things uh, aging. I was just reading, I think I read that somewhere or maybe saw it in the news, Cameron, that Sudoku is good for you. Yeah, I can believe that. It yeah. triggers, some, triggers some brain activity. Yeah, but is it good for baseball, do you think? Uh, I would imagine the number of baseball players doing Sudoku is very low. Yeah, okay. Uh, here's a, a question that comes out of this study, uh, more like a point of curiosity, is, uh, Ricky Henderson as a defensive player is a strange thing because yes. a he was he's essentially the best base runner in addition to being the, the nearly the best at a number of other things he's probably the best uh, the best base runner baseball's ever seen yes um he and he's very fast we know this and we say if a player is fast he's going to be a center fielder of course Ricky Henderson I don't know how many starts he ever made in center field, but he was a left fielder for the majority of his career. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Henderson and Tim Raines is another guy in this mix. Uh, they were kind of like the Carl Crawford of their days. Maybe not with the same extreme defensive ratings, uh, but, you know, speedy guys who looked like center fielders who played corners. You could almost throw Ichiro into this mix, too, um, even though he played some center field. He spent most of his time in right. Uh, guys who look like, you know, based on their physical skills and what you would think of their skill set, should be playing center field. And for various reasons, whether it's, uh, you know, they weren't very good route runners, they didn't read the ball off the bat very well, they just weren't very comfortable in center field. Whatever it is, they both, they, are, they all uh, spent most of their career in a corner spot, which I think, uh, you know, a lot of people tend to look at it and say, oh man, that, they lose a lot of value playing in a corner spot. Like, you know, that you, now you compare their, uh, you know, their OPS or their Woba or something to the average of a left fielder. It's, it's much lower than that of a, a center fielder. Therefore, they lose a lot of value. I actually think that this kind of mentality is mostly wrong. Uh, I think in general, uh, you know, we see center fielders are, uh, given a chance to field about 10% more balls over the course of the season than a corner outfielder. It's a difference, but it's not a massive difference. There are still balls hit to left field and right field that need to be caught, and having range in left and right field is still useful. Uh, you know, it's not, I think one of the things that people think is that, uh, in a corner outfield spot, defense is less important. I'm not sure that's actually true. I think that the defense is just as important as it is in center field. Really the only, 
uh, downgrade is that there are fewer opportunities. But the difference isn't that huge. It's not like, you know, uh, shortstop versus first base where there's a dramatic difference in number of uh, potential plays that can be turned into an out or range is really important. I think in the outfield, range is about equally important in all three spots except for the fact that center field just gets more opportunities, which is why you put the best uh, defenders in center field. But it's not a huge gap. If you put a really good rangy outfielder in a corner spot, you're not going to lose that much value compared to putting them in center field. Well, yeah, and here is uh, just um, some back-of-the-envelope calculations, Dave Cameron. Uh, I didn't actually use a real envelope, but uh, everything else holds. Uh, through 1990, which is uh, Ricky Henderson's uh, age... Uh, uh, sorry, this is a in- intriguing radio. Right, through 1990, it's his age 31 season. Uh, Ricky Henderson was worth... <laughs> He's sighing. You're sighing at what I'm saying. He's worth 60 runs above average defensively. That's not where he ended up because he played for like 15 more years. Right. But, uh, if you're 60 runs, uh, 60 runs over, uh, so every 150 games, that was about five and a half runs above average, which is essentially like a plus three center fielder. Which, that's not shocking to hear, is it? No, right. I mean, I think, you know, what we know is that good defenders in a corner spot can still have positive value. But Brett Gardner was a defensive asset for the Yankees for a long time before they moved him to center field. Uh, you know, I think we, we know that, uh, you know, running down balls in the corners, you know, hits Jay counts them out just the same as running down a ball in the gap. And, uh, you know, so there's still going to be plays in the corners for guys like Henderson or Reigns or, or, uh, you know, each row to, to add value even if they're not. Uh, center fielder is long term, and I think, you know, maybe when people talk about Ellsbury and say, okay, well, when his legs go and he has to move to right field, the bat's not all that special. Uh, well, the glove's still gonna be pretty special compared to other right fielders, right? Like, if, if your peers group is now, uh, you know, Nelson Cruz and, uh, lumbering sluggers, uh, and you take a guy who used to be an elite defensive center fielder and you move him to right field, he's gonna be an elite defensive right fielder, kind of like Tory Hunter at this point in his career where, um, you know, Hunter's, Probably not a center fielder anymore, but he's still a pretty good defensive right fielder even at age 40. And Shane Shane Victorino? Shane Victorino? Victorino, Victorino's another good example. I think if you take a center fielder and put him in a corner, you should expect him to be very, very good, uh, especially if he's a good defensive center fielder. Uh, The idea that Ellsbury's going to have no defensive value in his mid-30s is probably wrong. Uh, Looking at a question like this with with regard to Ricky Henderson, for example, right, or any of these comps that you brought up, I'm curious as to what your process is when, uh, you know, occasionally in fan graphs, we will introduce a a new metric, um, or as we did uh, recently, you – the defensive metric, we just have off, you know, we have now offense and defense, so you can see everything relative to league average. And the defensive metric, of course, is position agnostic, so that it, it you know, you can see how different players, uh, you can compare them across positions more easily, perhaps. A question, what is your process, if you even have one, for like going back and checking Ricky Henderson or going back and checking Tim Raines to see, uh, to see how they uh, are, how you know how they're acquitted by by a new metric. Do you have like a process, or are you just like, oh, maybe uh, uh, you know, I'll go check uh, when I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, with what we know with defensive metrics prior to 2002, they're not based on batted ball data; they're based on uh, box score data, like assists and putouts and those kinds of things, and what you can infer about the, a player's defensive ability from knowing how many outs he actually made and how many fly balls his team actually allowed. And uh, there are things you can glean from the retro sheet data from 1974 to 2002 uh, that, you know, 
isn't totally useless, but it's not the same thing as the batted ball data we have since 2002 uh, from companies like Baseball Info Solutions who've been tracking the stuff with video and you know classifying batted ball types. Uh, so I think you know with the older defensive metrics uh, for Reigns and Henderson, you know I think we take them with grains of salt and we say, okay, you know we might say that. Uh, based on total zone, which is, you know, the play by, the non-play-by-play metric we used for before 2002, uh, Tim Raines was a negative three defender when you include position and defense. But I mean, really, that could be like negative 10 to plus 10. I mean, the error bars on that are really large. Uh, so I think, you know, to say Raines was probably an average-ish defender is fair. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe he was below average, maybe he was above average. We don't know for sure. Uh, so I'm not like, digging deep on defensive metrics prior to 2002 because I think the the range of what they tell us is uh, pretty wide. What about like when uh, we introduced base running, though, for example? And, of course, th- that same conversation applies uh, quite a bit to this conversation. Did it, like when we uh, adopted the base running metric, you know, a com- combination of weighted stolen base runs and uh, ultimate base running to form an uber base running metric, which is uh, usually represented as BSR on the website, do you go back and say, like, oh, I wonder how, like, the first Billy Hamilton was at base running? Or maybe if it doesn't go back quite that far, maybe, like, uh, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays. Right. So, like, it's kind of the same thing. Before 2002, the base running metric on the site is only stolen bases. We don't have first to third, second to home, all that kind of data uh, prior to 2002 when, when Baseball Info Solutions starts providing us data. For the box score years before, from 2001 before, uh, we can certainly calculate the value of stolen bases, and we can look at Henderson and how well he stole bases, uh, you know, and how efficient he was and how often he got caught and calculate the run values based on the, the offensive errors of the time, but we don't have the other data. We don't have the second to home or first to third or tagging up on a sack fly. Uh, so I think, you know, we know that the good base runners of the, the prior eras are underrated. Like Ricky Henderson probably was uh, better than he even shows up on the Fangraphs player pages because we're not giving him credit for things that he was very likely good at. Is there any way uh, uh, where we could maybe find a correlation? Do you think a cor- do, 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 can we find a correlation between uh, like present players and the relationship between their weighted stolen base runs and uh, ultimate base running? Or maybe if there's something with speed rating, can we do anything with that, Dave Cameron? We could, yeah. I mean, I think we could say, you know, players uh, of this bucket who have this kind of uh, WSB in a given season have an average, uh, you know, UBR, which is, I think, what we refer to as our, our other kinds of base running. Um, and we could create some kind of expected uh, base running value based on what we know about a player's stolen base rate. The problem is it's, you know, we don't want to necessarily put that into war because it's really a total guess, right? Like, there are players who are really good at base stealing uh, and are not so good at all the other things. They're they're kind of slow, and, uh, you know, when it's just a straight-out sprint, uh, you know, they're not they're not that good, but they have, you know, they get really good jumps on the pitcher, or they uh, use the element of surprise, they run in the right situations, so they're, like, high-efficiency base stealers, even though they're not that fast. And so uh, those kinds of guys we would end up overestimating, um, the other side of the coin, there might be guys who are just so fast that they're they're good at stealing bases, uh, but they're not great base runners for whatever reason. I think Carlos Gomez is one guy who's known to get thrown out on the bases a lot, uh, but a pretty good base stealer. I think like near 80% for his career. So um, guys like that, I think we would tend up missing on, and our and our overall correlation might uh, suggest that they're better or worse than they actually are. Yeah, I was actually recently um, just fooling around with some of those numbers. And then you have another sort of base runner that's like Dexter Fowler, who uh, has natural ability and actually is uh, pretty excellent. Is pretty excellent in terms of like um, 
all of the base running acts that don't include base stealing, but has never right. become a great base stealer. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think what we know is that base stealing isn't just straight-up physical talent. A lot of it is reading the pitcher, getting a good first move, knowing when to run. Uh, and, you know, a guy like Fowler just might not be good at those parts of base stealing. Yeah, remember that uh, piece that I think Jonah Carey did it this year where he had uh, Coco Crisp looking at yep. various – remember right. that piece? Yep. Oh, that I was do. pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah. We should do stuff like that, I think. Uh, sure. I will, I will put you right on that. Okay, we'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. Listen, the thing that happened, th- this could just be like 30 seconds of this. The thing that happened last week is all the awards were given out. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you, 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 I know that I see that you're put in this awkward position where you, because it's the thing that's happening in baseball and, uh, to some degree, if you don't write about it, then you're not participating in baseball, right? I mean, it's the thing that's happening. You, want, you know, it's a conversation that's going on. Fangraphs participates in baseball conversations, and if we don't participate in them, it's kind of like not existing. But then at the same time, I see that you don't really want to be part of the conversation. I think I was just—I didn't want to do it again. Like <laughs> last year, we spent so much time uh, breaking down the Mike Trout, Miguel Cabrera argument and kind of showing why Trout was even a better player than Cabrera and you know I probably wrote 10 posts last year comparing Trout and Cabrera and the MVP ballot and uh you know why I thought Trout was better and then this year it was like the exact same rehash except for uh the voters gave themselves an out clause by saying that you know Cabrera's team was good and Trout's team was bad and therefore the therefore Trout had no value I mean that was you know, like, nothing else mattered at that point. Like, for most of the voters, the fact that Trout played on a losing team was uh, enough of a disqualifying factor to eliminate him from consideration, at which point, like, what do you even do? If you if you can't convince someone uh, that players on bad teams have value, then nothing else you say matters. You can calculate the value of uh, Trout individually. You can show how, you know, why uh, Cabrera's teammates were the reason that uh, his team was good and Trout's teammates were the reason that his team was bad, and none of it matters. If they really believe that a player on a bad team has no value, you, you know, might as well just throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, that's what you believe. Congratulations, I just don't care about your award anymore. And that's kind of, a, you know, like, not that I don't care at all if Mike Trout ever wins an MVP. I think it would be, you know, good for baseball if we honor one of the best players we've ever seen. More than that, I think I'm a little concerned as a BBWAA member uh, that an organization I belong to is hurting their own credibility. I think that, you know, if the if the Oscars started giving, like, uh, what was that Ben Affleck movie from 15 years ago, Geely, that everyone hated? That, uh, <laughs> like the word. If, if that won, like, best picture, it wouldn't make people respect Geely more. It would make them respect the Oscars less, right? Uh-huh. Like, if you just start giving out the wrong thing and you continually start giving awards to the p- things that people think are ridiculous, they're just going to stop taking you seriously. And I think if the BBWAA awards want to maintain their status into the future, they need to start rewarding uh, what people actually believe are the best players, uh, or recording history in a way that won't be mocked 20 years later. So the way to do that is, um, um, can we have just a, can we call it the best player award? Or can we come up with another award that's called the best player award? Or can we do something that, that, um, um, <clears throat> uh, Naveen, uh, who writes for Knockrafts, Oh, there's a dog, a dog situation. There's a dog. Oh. She just, she has come in from the outside and is very excited to see me. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, she, she is currently, uh, licking every part of my face that is oh, not. Okay, yeah. Has she, uh, has she 
Uh, it sounds like she's recovered uh, somewhat from her procedure of last week. She she is uh, alive again uh, and has energy. And the, the tough thing is they tell you not to let them uh, have a lot of, like, exercise or activity for 10 days. I don't know if you've ever tried to keep a puppy from having activity levels for 10 days after yeah. the medicine wears off. It is uh, basically impossible. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, – dogs have uh, – they like to move around. I think that's a fact. They are, yeah. Anyways, uh Wait, what the hell are we talking about? Oh, yeah, the awards. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Naveen. Naveen Vaswani. He does this post. He says, uh, we should have, we just have a Mike Trout award. We give out to Mike Trout every year. Can we yeah, do that? I, I think that's unlikely. I did actually float the idea on Twitter last week of the BBWA just creating a best player award. Uh, if we're going to say, as the organization, uh, that the MVP is not for the best player, why don't we just have an award for the best player? And Susan Slusser, who used to be the president of the BBWAA until about a month ago, uh, said that she thought it was an intriguing idea. And, uh, you know, I think there are probably parts of the organization who would support uh, creating some kind of best player award. I think it would get shot down and, and probably has very little chance of happening. Uh, because I think that for a lot of the writers, uh, they love this, right? Like, they think this is one of the best parts of their job, is having this annual debate about valuable versus best, and it creates a ton of page views for, for baseball writers. It creates a ton of interest uh, in terms of um, filling content and allowing, you know, even people like us to have things to write about in early November when there aren't any free agent signings. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of interest in, the, in this kind of conversation, even though it's the same conversation we're having every year. I don't think... The BBWAA members are all that interested in sacrificing what is essentially one of their babies uh, and saying, okay, let's just create another award that will end all this controversy. Uh, you know, we can give Cabrera the MVP. We can give Trout the best player award. Uh, we don't have to have this argument anymore. I think they want to have this argument. I think they want to be able to write these columns. I think, uh, it, you know, to some degree, uh, they prefer to have an argument every every year about the uh, meaning of the word valuable um, because of what it does for their ability to write and and write columns and and fill quotas and you know get readers interested in their columns uh, versus just giving the best player an award that he probably deserves. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess if you don't have the MVPs to talk about uh, or some of the other awards, although those are typically less. Uh, they receive less coverage. Well, they do receive some. Uh, then you're then you're stuck doing things uh, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> um, uh, posts which include this line. Uh, I know the world probably didn't need another article saying that teams are paying too much for free agent relievers. Um, you know, you know who wrote those words. I did, and that was, uh, you know, uh, someone actually asked me on Thursday when I was writing about how I didn't really care about the MVP award uh, that much, why I wrote 1,500 words about the MVP award, and I told them I couldn't really in good conscience uh, write 1,500 words about Nick Punto that day because, you know, it was the MVP day, and that's what people expected to write about. It's my job to write about things that people care about. So the next day, I wrote 1,100 words on Nick Punto. I was really, uh, I really wanted to write a lot of words about Nick Punto. So I made a, I made a point of doing it the day after the MVP. Yeah, right. And uh, uh, Nick Punto, you, you think that um, your point with regard to Nick Punto, uh, Nick Punto is sort of representing a type, right, of the yeah. uh, the backup infielder who could play, yeah. uh, could play basically any position, I think, with some uh, reasonably well. Um, yeah. He signed, uh, he signed in, uh, I mean, you know. Uh, quite a bit of money. I think three million dollars for one year. Yeah, yeah. correct. Um, so that's a good amount. 
uh, and you say uh, it's also reasonable uh, with regard to the market. Why are uh, why are backup infielders still getting so much less money than relief pitchers, despite the fact that they play relatively uh, the same amount relative to the team's uh, uh, overall, you know, innings or plate appearance or something like this? You think it's a question of brand management, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting how uh, when you talk about a guy like Dick Pinto, who is a, a very productive player on a per-plate appearance basis, over his career, I think he's about two and a half war per 600 plate appearances, which is an above-average starting player or a slightly above-average starter. Uh, you know, he's been generally relegated to reserve roles. And you see, like, you know, he's very productive. He was very good for the Dodgers last year. We had him at 1.9 war in 300 plate appearances, which is you know, near all-star levels on a per-plate appearance uh, performance. He had very, you know, excellent defense uh, at shortstop and at second base, uh, the ability to play third base, and, you know, a decent on-base percentage. A guy who draws walks, is a, you know, was roughly a league average hitter last year, probably won't do that again. But, you know, a, a decent enough hitter to, you know, be in the lineup on a, a fairly regular basis, maybe not every day, but, you know, you could play him three four days a week and he wouldn't kill you. Uh but when we, you know, we understand if we're only projecting him for 250 or 300 plate appearances, the market's just not going to give him that much money because he doesn't play enough. And this is the basic rationale is, well, he's a, he's a reserve. He's only going to play part-time. We can't spend that much money on a guy who has a limited role. But then we we understand that his limited role is the same size as the limited role of the pitcher that's going to pitch the ninth inning, and he's getting $15 million a year. That doesn't make any sense. So I think, you know, what I was just basically trying to point out is that, uh, reserve, quality reserve infielders, quality reserve players in general are probably more valuable than the market is paying them. But there's a stigma against bench players that doesn't exist against relief pitchers. I think we can actually justify six, seven, eight, nine million a year for really good relief pitchers. No, there's not a bench player in the world making that. Uh, you know, the, I think the highest paid player who is signed to be a bench guy is like four million dollars. Uh, we never see a team saying, you know what, I really want a tenth guy who can, you know, fill in for all of my starters, who can, you know, get 400 plate appearances, uh, give me depth at all my positions, going to make sure that if someone gets hurt, I don't have to call up some scrub from AAA. I think you could make a case that that kind of player would be worth, you know, 6 or $7 million on a one-year deal. We never see teams spending that kind of money on bench depth. We do see it. <laughs> the same thing that always happens. Uh, your connection fucked. Yeah, but hey, look, I'm back. You were you were in the process of saying that you could justify theoretically paying these guys six, seven million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think you know if we had like a tenth tenth man who could play all over the field, play fairly regularly, uh, you know, produce at a you know league average or slightly above a league average rate when he was on the field, if he was used in a platoon situation to maximize his skills, you can make a case that that guy is going to be a, a you know one and a half two win player. That's worth. Uh, you know, six or seven million dollars to a team next year, but we never see them do that. I think the most expensive bench player in baseball who is signed to be a bench player is like four million dollars. Uh, we never see teams invest in their bench the way we do in relief pitching, which I think speaks to a little bit of a, a market inefficiency, if you want to call it that, or maybe just an imbalance in how, how the money on reserves is spent. Wait, yeah, and here's a question too. Um, I, I feel like one of the problems with teams sometimes, it's not just a matter of, uh, compiling uh, a good amount of talent at all the different positions. But there's also something that loses teams' games is when they don't have a replacement player who's actually decent, right? Because yeah. then you have to go so, – so teams sometimes are uh, – they can have troubles not because they lack high-end talent but because they lack the sort of talent that would prevent them from, from uh, you know, playing a disaster player uh, right. at a position. 
Yeah, I mean, I think basically what we know is the teams can improve their overall talent levels in two ways. They can raise their ceiling or they can raise their floor. Uh, and I think the Stars and Scrubs model, as it's often referred to, is all about raising your ceiling, getting the most possible war in a scenario where everything goes right and everyone stays healthy and you have five or six guys who are, you know, superstar players. Uh, you know, I think this is almost like the Milwaukee Brewers model, right, where they had, like, Ryan Braun, if he would have stayed healthy and not gotten suspended, uh, Jonathan Lucroy, Carlos Gomez, uh, you know, they had some pieces who had some really good years, and then they had 20 players who were absolutely terrible and dragged the rest of the team down because they were so bad. Uh, and, you know, I think when you have Unieski Betancourt as your starting first baseman, maybe you should have spent more time raising your floor rather than trying to raise your ceiling. I think that's an example of what can happen if you, uh, you know, focus too much on the first six or ten guys on your roster and not enough on the next 15. But and you think that... In a situation like that, is Unieski, I mean, there are other players that are available sometimes besides Unieski Bedencourt, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that was just the Brewers being dumb. I mean, you know, there's still black, uh, uh, black holes and thoughts sometimes where teams don't see a guy like Unieski Bedencourt as being a terrible player, even though he has a 240 on base percentage, because he hits some home runs, and so there's probably just a, a little bit of a, uh, intelligence gap there when it comes to Unieski Betancourt's performance and whether he should have been uh, actually in the lineup for the Brewers that often. He got 400 plate appearances this year. He was their starting first baseman for several months. 240 <laughs> on base percentage. Can you just can you find out? Is it like a day of Russell Brannion? If you just find Russell Brannion, some uh, Russell Brannion is playing by the way in uh, Mexican Pacific League right now. Yeah, hitting the I, ball. I think uh, what we saw is. Really, any team that wants to uh, expend any kind of effort can find a better player than Unieski Betancourt. It's not that hard. You could comb through AAA rosters, find a non-prospect somewhere. I think, you know, even the Mets, like Ike Davis was bad. So they called up a guy named Josh Sutton, who was, what, 28 years old and basically considered a non-prospect, had no power. All he did in AAA was draw walks. And he got to the majors and he drew a bunch of walks and he was really good for a couple of months. And you know, like, if you go pluck a guy like that who's a non-tools, no power, high walk, triple A veteran, uh, it's not gonna cost you anything. It might cost you 25 grand or you have to buy the GM dinner or something. He would give you a better production than Unieski Betancourt. Right, so actually the, the, the instance with Sadden versus Betancourt is an interesting, uh, illustration of, of what we're talking about here is avoiding disaster, you know, avoiding black holes. Uh, because Sadden was worth like, one, one and a half wins, and Betancourt is worth nearly negative two wins. Yeah, right. That's a three and a half win swing. Right, and you don't need a star to do it. No, right. That's like the equivalent of adding Jacoby Ellsbury to your team. Oh, man. That's yeah. frustrating. That's frustrating right. for Brewers fans, I bet. Having a giant sucking black hole on your team when you don't have to have one is devastating to a team. Hmm. So who's the best player? I mean, maybe Nick Punto was part of this crowd. Like, the best player... Maybe Craig, we've talked about Craig Gentry as well. Yeah. Like, like the, the, the player who's not expected to be a starter, I guess you call him bench player, the best bench player who's not getting, who, who kind of produces at something above a bench play level. Yeah, I mean, I think you can probably throw Matt Adams into this, uh, uh, context where he was the Cardinals backup first baseman, but I think he had like a 370 Wobo last year. Uh, pretty good. Uh, I think, you know, there are teams who have kind of this 10th guy, especially in the National League, where you need it if you're going to pinch hit for the pitcher a fairly regular amount. You want to have a guy on the bench who can actually hit. Um, and so I think, you know, we do see that there are guys like Punto or Craig Gentry or Matt Adams or whoever it is who are 
pretty valuable. I think Jan Gomes would be another good example of this in Cleveland, where he went from being a you know backup catcher, he hit so well, he basically forced Carlos Santana to first base uh, and became the regular catcher down the stretch because he was so good. But if you have a guy who's you know in 300 plate appearances can produce at a very high level. That can be a really valuable piece. I think John Gomes was worth something like four war and half a season <laughs> last year. Uh, you know, it, that was one of the main reasons the Indians, Ryan Rayburn was another example of this. They, they basically hit huge on two, uh, you know, low cost bench guys who were, you know, monster players for them and helped push them into the playoffs. I came, I came across a post recently that I think, um, Mark Hewlett not to say he didn't employ the right sort of thinking when he wrote the post, but I think it's one that he'd like not to have on the internet called, um, it's from the beginning of 2012. It's called Meaningless Spring Stats, the Jan Gomes example. Yeah. And he's, he basically says like, clearly this guy is not going to become anything. Who cares right. if he's had a couple of home runs? Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. But it turns out Jan Gomes, uh, he is something. He, he's something, right. I mean, I think he's probably going to be the Indian starting catcher next year. I think Jan Gomes was good enough last year to push Carlos Santana out of the way and make him move to another position. Not that Santana was ever a great defensive catcher to begin with, uh, but Gomes is, you know, maybe a little bit below average hitter who's a really good thrower. Uh, you know, rates okay on the pitch framing techniques and, and all the things about catching that we think, you know, we probably don't measure all that well. He might not be a, a an average defensive catcher, maybe he's a little below average, but the bat is, you know, has some power and uh, he makes some contact. I think Jan Gomes is probably an above average major league catcher and they got him for nothing. Yeah, what do we expect? Uh, so say in theory uh, Carlos Santana had caught uh, every game uh, last season and, and then he were to play first base every game this season. What do we generally expect in terms of a bump from that move? I think the uh, total span of the uh, defensive spectrum in terms of position adjustment is about three wins. So from catcher to DH is about a three-war move. Uh, first base is, you know, uh, not penalized as heavily as catcher, but I think at that point it's like two, two-and-a-half wins um, if you were an average catcher and an average first baseman. Now, what we generally see with Santana is he's not an average catcher, and he'll probably be an average first baseman, so he's going to get a defensive bump in that he won't be taking the hit uh, that he was relative to getting compared to a, a better class of defensive players. So in his gap, it'll, in his case, it'll probably be more like a gap of one to two wins rather than two to three. And we expect, and, and of course this could apply to Joe Maurer you know, even more so, right, is what do we expect those guys to hit as first basemen relative to what they hit as catchers? I assume that there's a there's an offensive bump. There, there's at least an offensive bump in terms of playing time. So it's harder to prove that uh, catchers will hit better on a rate basis when they move. There's some evidence of that. There's certainly, you know, anecdotal guys you can point to like Carlos Delgado and Craig Biggio and other guys who were moved out from behind the plate and became really good hitters, much better than they were as catchers. Uh, you know, there's other examples of guys who moved and just didn't hit because they were moved at the end of their career. So you don't really know what they would have done if they were mm-hmm. moved earlier in their careers. Um, but I think we, at the very least, we can say that, uh, there's a significant, uh, increase in quantity of, of hitting. So if you are a catcher and you're gonna catch 110 games a year, and then maybe even they would DH you another 10 or 20, you're still gonna spend 30 games a year on the bench. If you're the starting first baseman, you might play 150, 160. So you're gonna at least get another 20, 30 games, maybe even 40 games, depending on how often you sat or how often you DH'd. Uh, you know, in terms of that's, you know, in some cases 20% of the season, uh, where you're in the lineup versus being on the bench. So, uh, a guy like Maurer, I think, you know, you can look at it and say, oh man, he's not going to be nearly as valuable at first base. 
you know, that's true on a per-game basis, but there's going to be more games, and that's going to offset a decent amount of the loss. Uh, you know, Maurer will not be as valuable at first base as he was a catcher, because he was a pretty good defensive catcher, but he's not going to stop being valuable. He's still going to be a really good first baseman. Okay. All right, well, we didn't get to the big Brendan Ryan signing, but we'll have to... Uh... Next week. Uh, well, yeah, we'll have to do that next week. Uh, the, you've wanted uh, uh, to fulfill your obligation here, uh, Dave Cameron, so why don't you say uh, thank you and goodbye. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. That's been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Zestule from Fangraphs Audio.